before I was so rudely interrupted. <laughs> I want to talk a little bit about the last letter in Revelation chapter 3, the letter to the church in Laodicea. And I guess it's the best known because uh, we've probably heard the idea of the lukewarm church or a lukewarm faith preached many, many times over the years. I want to spend a little bit of time talking about this and, and then I thought it would be a good idea, seeing as I'm a university lecturer, to, to put a table up to summarise all of the letters so you can memorise it and impress somebody later on. Good on, is that good? Smile, Aaron, it's good. You can, one of these days, I'm absolutely certain, you'll be able to impress somebody if you memorise this table. <laughs> He's not convinced. <laughs> He's just not convinced. Well, anyway, you're going to get it because I'm a university lecturer and I just can't help myself. <laughs> but I also want to, to wrap up our discussion of the letters by, by reference to an approach which is a fairly common approach to understanding these letters in uh, evangelical and Pentecostal circles just for, com for completeness. And as I've mentioned, each time I've uh, discussed these letters, there's application on three levels. First, these letters were written to real churches, so there's something about history here. They were real churches that existed at the time that John was writing the letters, and each of these letters would have been carried to the church in the respective city. But there's also another level, and that is the level of the church today, as we reflect on how the commendations and condemnations in these letters might apply to church, that is the body corporate type church, the institutional church today. And then thirdly, there's the individual level. How might those commendations and condemnations apply to us in our own faith walk? Those three levels. So let us move on and actually read the relevant passage. I don't know whether you'll be able to actually read it because there's a fair bit on that, that slide. Maybe you need to walk up pretty close to read it. So this is what the Spirit says to John. Write this letter to the angel of the church in Laodicea. This is the message from the one who is the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's new creation. I know all the things you do, that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish that you were one or the other. But since you are like lukewarm water, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. You say I'm rich. I have everything I want. I don't need a thing. And you don't realise that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. So I advise you to buy gold from me. Gold that has been purified by fire. Then you will be rich. Also buy white garments from me so you will not be shamed by your nakedness. And ointment for your eyes so you will be able to see. I correct and discipline everyone I love. So be diligent and turn from your indifference. You know, uh, the city of uh, Laodicea was a very wealthy city. It was in the area called Phrygia and uh, Laodicea and, and Antioch were the two cities that vied 
strongly against each other for preeminence uh, in the area. Preeminence particularly commercially. Uh, there was lots of wealth in Laodicea. Uh, the church itself was pretty wealthy. And just about everybody in that city, including people in the church, had um, kind of taken on board Greek culture. It was a, a city, another one of these centres of uh, cult worship. There were a number of gods who featured in uh, the worship in Laodicea. Uh, they included uh, Dionymus, Helios, um, Hera, and uh, Athena. Uh, most of them well-known Greek gods. So there was a lot of uh, worship going on, but it wasn't worship to the Lord God. It was a very proud city. It was proud of its self-sufficiency. Although, as I shall mention very shortly, it wasn't actually self-sufficient in all respects. There had been a, a massive earthquake in this area around AD 60, and uh, the emperor in Rome had said, we, we will help rebuild all the cities. Laodicea said, we don't want your help. We're rich. We can do it all ourselves. And so they did. And you know, that's symbolic, isn't it, of a, of a church that becomes independent and says to God, don't need you. We're rich. We got what we wanted. And we don't need to give anything back by way of worship and, and gratitude and, and praise and obedience. But you know, the most significant feature of Laodicea was actually its water. It wasn't actually self-sufficient in water. It had to import water. And uh, although most of the, they had big stone pipes and most of these pipes were, were, were underground, but some of them were exposed, they were above ground. There were two problems with the water in Laodicea. One, it was full of lime because there were lots of lime deposits at the source of their water. But secondly, because for the, for the latter part of the journey of the water through these big stone pipes into the city, it actually became lukewarm. Now, cold water is okay, isn't it? Hot water is okay, isn't it? Who drinks hot water instead of tea or coffee? You can do that. It's not too bad, actually. It's good, Jill, isn't it? And it's not unhealthy for you either. What do you reckon about lukewarm? You know, when you have one of those bottles of water like Napoleon's got, it's been sitting on the front seat of the car while you've been to the shops. It's uh, 39 degrees outside and you take a swig. What's it like? <laughs> it's not too good, eh? So you see, when God says you've got a lukewarm faith, it's like lukewarm water, I'll spit you out of my mouth, they understood what he meant. Because they had to put up with this water every day. You're lukewarm, says God, to this church. You see, no matter what we do, if there isn't something fervent, about our relationship with God, about our worship and our praise, what we do for God doesn't matter. And it doesn't count. You see, God is interested in relationship. He wants a relationship. 
And he says, I'd rather a cold or a hot relationship, but I hate a lukewarm relationship. Neither hot nor cold. Kind of can't make up my mind, sit on the fence, somewhere in between. Outwardly, a wealthy church. But what does God say? Ha, you're not wealthy. You're wretched. But you don't know it. You're miserable. But you don't know it. You're poor. But you don't know it. You're blind. But you don't know it. You're naked. But you don't know it. Because you become so overwhelmed by the riches of this world. And you know, it's easy for us in Pentecostal circles to become like that because of the emphasis we place in our teaching on prosperity. Now look, I'm not critical of that at all. I believe in prosperity. I believe, you see, that because we are literally, in God's eyes, we are literally brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ. And the Bible teaches that we're entitled to the same rich inheritance as He is. Now, he's already received it because he's seated at the right hand of the Father now. But see, the Bible says we're seated with him in heavenly places. So our spiritual position already is seated with Christ Jesus right next door to God in heavenly places. But because we teach, and I believe in this teaching, that we can actually have divine health, and divine prosperity in this life, on this earth, at this time. But sometimes when we get it, we actually forget the God who provides. And it is God who provides. I'm listening to a teaching series by Andrew Womack at the moment on, on stewardship. And uh, the reason why he's called this series Stewardship is that the point that he's making is that we own nothing. Nothing. Not even these colourful socks. Don't you like your socks? My younger daughter, Lauren, bought them for me, so I have to wear them, right? My lollipop socks. They're not, they're not buying. I'm a steward. Right, eh? So what I do with these is important. Even right down to me socks. God cares about it. And uh, I don't know about you, but, you know, I often say to God, well, I'm, I'm just thankful that I'm alive because my life could have been different. It could have been ended a long time ago. But I thank God also that I can move, I can walk. Look at the day. Wow, Charles and I were just talking outside before church and we remarked on what a beautiful day it is. Well, who gave us the day? God, I was in uh, Sydney and Newcastle Friday and Saturday. It's really cold there, but wet. They need rain. I was talking to a, a farmer on the railway station as I was waiting to catch a train from uh, out near Moree. And 97% of New South Wales is drought declared at the moment. They need rain. Who's going to provide the rain? It's God. He's our provider. And if we need rain, we should pray for it. I'm sure I've told you the story of when Ainsley was a tiny little girl and 
we had a, an above ground pool in, in our backyard. This was when we were living in Christchurch and it was summer. And we needed rain for our garden, but Aisin wanted to go swimming. And I'd been praying for rain and she said, Daddy, what are we going to do? You pray for rain. I said, well, why don't you pray for sunshine? So she prayed for sunshine. She was about three years of age. And guess what happened? It rained. And then the sun came out. So I got all the rain I needed for my garden. And AC had all the sunshine that she needed for her swim. That's God. But see, you know, when we get these things, just like the church in Laodicea, we can sometimes forget who is the source. And as I look around Australia today, and this is so in many other, particularly Western societies, we have come to believe the lie that we did it. That we did it. We did it through scientific endeavour. We did it through our engineering prowess. That's a lie. We only ever can do these things because of who God made us to be. He's the one who gives us, as the King James Bible says in Proverbs 12, He's the one who gives us witty inventions. And we pray for David often enough for witty inventions when, when they get stuck in some element of design on their electric engines. And uh, I've prayed, I've stood and prayed with Neil when he got stuck on, on some technical issue associated with, with his project. Prayed for witty inventions and he got it, didn't you? But where did it come from? God. But we need to be so careful we don't become like this church in Laodicea. And rejoice in our prosperity but forget that we didn't do it. And it's not even our faith. You know, we can jump up and down and we can holler and we can shout and we can kind of boost our levels of faith. And one of the things that Pentecostals sometimes do is they idolise faith and think everything happens because of my faith. But it's not true. It happens because God is our Heavenly Father who desires to bless us. We do, of course, need faith because it's by faith that we appropriate what God has. But it's God who actually provides so let us be wary that we don't become lukewarm, that we don't live our life as a life of motions only, but not a life of a true and fervent relationship with God. The problem you see with the lukewarm church is that it locked God out. He goes on to say, look, I stand at the door and knock. If you hear my voice and open the door, I will come in and we will share a meal together as friends. Those who are victorious will sit with me on my throne just as I was victorious and sat with my father on his throne. And then here we have it yet again. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. Often this look, I stand at the door and knock, is quoted in the, in the context of salvation. It's not about salvation. 
The context here is not about salvation. The context here is about a church that has become so self-sufficient that it doesn't even let God in. It doesn't even let God in. We can jump up and down and we can play our guitars loudly and we can sing and we can hallelujah, but we can have the door shut to God. If we become the kind of people who end up actually idolising our faith and not the God who stands behind our faith. You see, this is a, a reference to covenant. If you open the door, I will come and eat with you because in, in these Eastern cultures... And, and it's so in many cultures still. Perhaps we've lost some of that because we eat too often at McDonald's and Hungry Jack's and places like that and, and KFC and so on. But in, in these cultures, food was more than eating because people came together and relationship was built over the meal. And this is what God's saying. I will come in. Oh, I don't, you know, even though you are lukewarm and I'd love to spit you out of my mouth, if you just open the door, I'll come in and I'll eat with you. I'll have a relationship with you. I don't care about the past. I don't even care about five minutes ago. If you open the door, I'll come in and I'll eat with you. And I'll make covenant with you. That was what sharing meals together was all about. It was about maintaining a covenantal relationship. I'm knocking, open. I will come in. I will eat with you. I will make covenant with you. And then we have this finish or climax to the letter. Those who are victorious will sit with me on the throne. See, we can chuck all that away. Just chuck away all that reliance on, or, or, or belief that we can all do it ourselves, even, even that it's our faith that brings prosperity. If we can chuck all that away, then we are victorious because we're victorious over the flesh and over the mind. And we release the spirit that was regenerated in us at the point of our salvation to have relationship with God. Those who are victorious, they will sit with me on my throne. See, we're seated in heavenly places with Christ Jesus. He's at the right hand of the Father. We sit right beside Christ Jesus. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. And that's how every letter finishes so let me turn now to a summary and uh, as I said I can't really help myself oh gee the writing's a bit small there eh mm -hmm. <laughs> oh boy I probably should have tried uh, probably should have put that on two two tables I'm sorry about that um, I have a rule that says you should never go below 40 point font for, for church but I broke that rule this morning I think it's significant. There's only two churches for which there's no condemnation at all. That's Smyrna and uh, Philadelphia. So Ephesus, the good thing about Ephesus, the commendation, they rejected evil. They had perseverance and patience. Their condemnation was that their love for Christ 
who's no longer fervent. And isn't it interesting how similar that is to the lukewarm church in Laodicea, which is the last letter. The exhortation is to do the works you did at first, but maintain that enthusiastic obedience to Christ that you had when you were first saved. And the promise is that those who are victorious, they will eat of the tree of life. For Smyrna, that was a church, remember, that was under great suffering. They gracefully bore their suffering. There was no condemnation for this church. Their exhortation was to be faithful until death. In other words, no matter what your situation, maintain your faith in God. And for them, the promise, those who are victorious, for those who managed to push through the crown of life. The church in Pergamon, they were commended because they kept the faith of Christ, but they were condemned because they tolerated immorality, idolatry and heresies. God's exhortation, repent. It just simply means turn around, change your approach, come back to God's ways. And those who are victorious will have hidden manna and a stone with a new name, <coughs> representing new life. For the church of Thyatira, they were commended for their love, for their service, for their faith, for their patience, all of which were greater than they were at first. But again, they were condemned also because they tolerated the cult of idolatry and immorality. Their exhortation, judgment is coming, so keep the faith and their promise. Those who overcome will rule over nations. And receive the morning star, which is a representation of Jesus Christ. The church in Sardis, some in Sardis had kept the faith, but it was a dead church. The exhortation, repent and strengthen what remains. Remember, there was just a remnant in that church of people whose faith remained fervent. And the promise, those who overcome, they will be honoured and clothed with white. For the church in Philadelphia, that church, they persevered in the faith, they kept the words of Christ and they honoured his name. And for them, there was no condemnation. The exhortation was to keep the faith, keep on hanging on. And the promise of placing God's presence, a new name and the new Jerusalem. And finally, as we saw today, the church in Laodicea, there was no uh, commendation. No commendation. The condemnation was that they were indifferent or lukewarm. The exhortation to be zealous and repent, to turn from your ways and come back to God. And those who overcome, those who are victorious, will share Christ's throne. If anybody wants the PowerPoint, by the way, I, I can actually get you the PowerPoint. If you want to give me your email address, I'll just send you the PowerPoint. I can actually send you the whole lot on all of the, the letters if, if you would like to have them. Now, what I want to do just over the next few minutes, <clears throat> it's a, or, or, this is a bit boring, by the way, but it, it, it's always a very difficult thing to, to teach from the book of Revelation because, as I mentioned before, there is so much written about it and there are so many different perspective. The perspective that I've taken here 
as I've mentioned numerous times, including today, is that the letters apply at those three levels. They apply historically to actual churches that existed at the time that John was writing. They have application to the church, the body of Christ today, and they have application to each one of us as an individual. But there are other views, and one view that I do want to um, quickly go through, because it is very commonly held in Pentecostal churches, it's called the dispensational approach to understanding not only these letters, but the whole of the book of, of Revelation. And essentially, the dispensationalists suggest or, or assert that each of the churches actually represents the body of Christ at a particular point in history. And so, for the church in Ephesus, it uh, represents uh, the church at the close of the first century. So, we're talking here about somewhere between, say, 50 and 70 years after Christ was alive on earth. Then the church in Smyrna represents the, the church, the whole of the church, the whole of the body of Christ from the beginning of the second century until Constantine at the beginning of the fourth century. And uh, for those of you who have been with us long enough to have heard um, David's occasional series on history of the church, which not finished yet, David. No, no, well, the church Oh, no, I suppose you're right. But we know, we, we know what's happening. <laughs> but um, David's done two or three in an occasional series on the, on the history of the church, and he talked about Constantine. Constantine actually declared Christianity as an official faith, and some people argue that that really boosted Christianity and, and enabled Christianity to, um, to uh, kind of um, spread right around the then-known world. Others are are a little bit critical and say, well, he actually kind of constrained, not, not so much the growth of Christianity in terms of numbers and its geographical spread, but our understanding of Christian truth. But nevertheless, nevertheless, Constantine had a remarkable impact on Christianity at the beginning of the fourth century. <clears> then <throat> we moved to the church at Pergamon. And uh, this represents in the eyes of the dispensationalists the church from the time of Constantine up until the end of the 7th century. The church at Thyatira, the church during the Middle Ages. So that's the first four churches. Uh, then we move on to the church at Sardis, representing the church from the Middle Ages up to the Protestant Revelation. And uh, not that long ago, we celebrated the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation which began, at least according to some, in 1517, when Martin Luther famously nailed his theses. They were theses, not theses, theses, <laughs> to the door of the Church of Wittenberg. And so enthusiastic students from Wittenberg took their theses to, uh, to Rome, and that was what kind of set off the furor that ended up with the separation of what we now call Protestant churches from the Catholic Church. Then uh, the letter to the church in Philadelphia represents, and this is not so much at a particular point in history, but this rep, they say this letter or this church represents the true church throughout all history, especially the part of the church in revival just prior to the apostasy of the last days. And we'll, we'll talk more about the apostasy of the last days as we move through 
our discussion on the book of Revelation. So that leaves just one more church, the church in Laodicea. And uh, the dispensationalists would suggest that this letter or this church represents the church in the final days prior to the pre-tribulation rapture, a church largely in a state of apostasy. So a state of apostasy effectively means you've turned your back on God. So you've got a religion, but not a faith in the one true living God. So there's motions, there's, there's practices, there's, there's liturgy, all of those things, but what's missing is a true, living, fervent, personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And just as a note, and we will touch on this, we'll not only touch, we'll major on this probably in a couple of weeks' time. The dispensationalist asserts the church will be raptured out of and before the great uh, tribulation. <clears throat> so we've got the contrast between the, the church in Philadelphia, that's the true church, the ones who have remained true to God throughout the whole of human history. And then we've got the church in Laodicea. Well, praise God, we will be a Philadelphian church, not a Laodicean church. I'll have much, much more to say about tribulation and, and rapture and so on in the days to come, but on the whole, uh, Pentecostal churches teach that there will be a rapture and that the true church, the church of the true believers, will actually be raptured totally out of, that means before, the uh, Great Tribulation. Does that mean we will never be persecuted? No, it doesn't. Because there's been persecution of the church all through history. What it does mean is that we will be removed from that part of human history which just precedes the victorious return of Jesus Christ. So I wanted to just share that with you. I know I've gone through it fairly quickly, but I, I, I try as much as I can to give you 